Good morning and welcome to Flat Out Recovery. Good morning. Good morning. And how are we all? Wonderful. Whoa. Wonderful. <laughs> Whoa. Come on. Alright to that. Let's start with Aaron, shall we? Uh, Someone nicked your bike. No, dry house living again. All blew up the other day. So we've had a really stressful house group on Friday. It's all kicked off. This morning I've come down to one of my housemates has relapsed, he's gone this morning. So I'm absolutely gutted for him. I feel like I'm to blame for it a little bit. I'm probably not, but that's just where my thinking goes. I felt like using this weekend a lot. I went out yesterday to Shrewsbury and the train goes through Wolverhampton. And that's where I'm from and that's where I did all my using, well most of my using. I nearly got off the train and went and scored. I didn't, but that's kind of where my head was going. An old friend of mine that I used with since I was about 13, he got in touch with me like a couple of weeks ago in bits. We'd fallen out massively. The last time I used was with him and we fell out massively because of my psychosis induced by crack cocaine smoking. And he got in touch with me, like he rang me like half 12 at night and he was in bits and that brought a few things up for me, like being back in touch with him. I've just been speaking about it to people. I told people straight away about what was going on. I've asked my sponsor to help my friend and hopefully he's gonna get in somewhere and do something about his addiction, but we never know. Yeah, my head's just a bit fried, to be honest, but I'm still clean, so. Yeah, when you got here, you didn't get off that train. No. You didn't do those things. No. I think that guilt thing about when someone relapses I think we all go through that. I can't speak for anyone else, I can only speak for me, but I've been through that more than once. Thinking, what if I do, or, as if I'm so important that I could have stopped someone else from relapsing. <laughs> yeah. As if I could just clip my fingers and suddenly nobody would relapse because I decided. No, but it's a normal kind of guilt, isn't it? Yeah, we've kind of discussed that situation because I know the guy as well. And the truth of it is that you know, he's kind of thinking and behaviour off key for a long while before this happens. You know what I mean, hence the blow up in the house group on Friday. You know, that was down to people's personalities that aren't working a program properly. If you're not living by the principles of the program, you're living by the principles of your personality. And as we all know, that's not a good way to live. But as long as you're true to yourself and honest with yourself, whether or not he picks up is irrelevant to you. I'll get you gutted for him. I am as well because he's a lovely fella. But. He was going to use one way or the other, whether you were involved in that situation or not. Yeah. I think it's also perfectly reasonable to be gutted for anyone that yeah. picks up. They don't even have to be someone you particularly like. I'm always despairing when I see anyone pick up, even if it's someone that I've seen in treatment who I know is going to pick up and I know who's just waiting to walk around the corner and go to the pub. Mm. And I know that they've not got past the point of being obnoxious and difficult and you can see that they're not ready and it's not going to happen, but I'm still gutted when they do it. Yeah, you wouldn't wish active using on anybody, would you? It's just you learn gradually to, to not feel guilty and not feel that I could have done this or I could have done that. Because mm. if the person's going to do it anyway, then we're powerless, aren't we? Yeah. It's part of that next level of powerlessness you learn in early recovery. Yeah. <laughs> that it's not just about the substance and other people it's about oh hang on i really can't stop someone from doing something that i know is going to hurt them and they know it's going to hurt them and all i can do is stand by and look after myself 
And I think getting to the point of thinking, shit, I want to use, I've known many people there. And it's a testament to your recovery that you're still here. Absolutely. Because if yeah. you weren't doing those things, you wouldn't be still here. You'd be flat on your back somewhere in Wolves. Yeah, 100%. But it works. You do whatever you're doing, it's working. Because, like you say, you would have been bang at it. You wouldn't have gone as far as you've gone. But I do get like what we were just talking about with people relapsing, sometimes people dying. There's people that died that I know, and I'm like, Survivor's why guilt. on earth? I was thinking, I wish they'd have spoken to me, or maybe they should have well, to anyone. Yeah, to anyone. And, and I understand that we're not God, and this, that, and everyone. Who are we? That's like an ego thing. But at the same time, it comes from a place of caring, and it's almost like, shit, you've done it, and you didn't need to, and stuff like that. I've had it loads with people, even people that don't even know that well. And they're dead, they've been found dead. And it's mm. like, I've spoken to that person before. Maybe I could have said something to that person. I mean, I've had it not even around recovery stuff, you know, my brother hanged himself mm. and the guilt I felt after. I hadn't phoned him for quite a long time before that happened. And I was like, well, I didn't phone him. Why didn't he phone me when he was feeling like that? But the truth of it is, there's nothing I could have done either way. It's the confusion yeah. of what ifs and this, that and other. And yeah, and when people relapse, it's the same thing. I start to get a little bit angry with people as well when they relapse. That's another emotional. Well, that's thing. understandable. Especially if it's someone that's close to me. It's like, what the fuck? It's almost like you're a traitor. Mm. You've done everything that we've all agreed that we shouldn't do, and we've been working very hard to maintain that. And then you've gone out and relapsed. It's just a whirlwind of emotions. And a bit of jealousy in there as well. Mm. Oh, I wish I could just go and smoke a bit of crack. <laughs> yeah, no, that feeling came up for me a little bit this morning and I was like, oh, fuck it, I could, I could do the day off. I've done it for seven months, so I can have a pipe now. I think the, the survivor's guilt as well is something that we get, it's like, yeah. especially when someone much younger dies. Definitely. I find myself thinking, well, you know, they've hardly even started, how on earth am I still here? We lost two people last week, man, two deaths. That's the reality of, of addiction is, yeah, you might relapse and, you know, people say, keep coming back, keep coming back. You know, you might not get back. That's the truth of it. You might relapse and go, oh, you know, I've made a right pig's ear of this. I need to get back to a meeting. I need to get back in touch with my sponsor. But there's also just as much chance that you're going to be out there for an extended period of time or overdose on the first hit or whatever. People, I don't people think it gets easier when people relapse either. No. Over time. And like you say, Ronnie, there's that feeling of collective responsibility if you've been through rehab together and all of that. Mm -hmm. And then when someone does it, it's treasonous, isn't it? How can you do that? You know, we've all said we we're going to do this and we've all got this far. And it is that feeling of what part did you not agree with then that I agreed with? And are you calling me a CUNT for thinking that the programme works? It's all sorts of stuff that can go through. It's crazy, but I had this girl once and... Unfortunately, I had a report from a job that I'm volunteering at, and they said oh, I had a report of somebody using, to which I passed it on to the powers that be, who then discharged the person. The person then ended up dead. In my head, I was thinking, oh God, why did I jump on that? Why didn't I? Mm. But then it's like, well, actually, no, because you're then you're leaving the person in the house, you ain't doing your job for one, and two, you're in for people at risk. The thing is, you're just doing the job. If yes. you've done the job, then if that person then goes on and carries on doing that, that's not you, that's them. It's, it's 
but it's difficult to grasp to begin with. It's knowing that that person, the chances are, if they get evicted from the place, they're gonna go out and really hit the fuck it button, and that'll find hard. Understandably so. Mm. I read a discussion about this in the group last week about the kind of prison mentality of grassing people up in your house. And it's like, it's not grassing. This is not a prison establishment. This is supposed to be a safe environment. And if someone is in the house using, that's not grassing them up, that's preservation, self-preservation for you and preservation of the lives of the other people in the house. Yes, absolutely. Because if someone's smoking crack in my house and I smell it, however clean I am, that's going to be attractive. Despite the information that I have that if I do it, I'm probably going to die or end up in a police cell or end up homeless again. Having that knowledge is not going to stop me if someone's sitting in my house smoking it. And even if I resist it, other people might not be able to. It's that mental twist, isn't it? That's the insanity. I'd be like you going yesterday, being on the train station, thinking, get off now and have a a joint or whatever, pipe. Knowing in the back of your head that it's going to cause an awful lot of damage to everything that you've built up because it's guaranteed to isn't it but yet still thinking that i'm gonna go and do this yeah it's crazy mm-hmm. it's like we can block out stuff on purposely block it out and i used to do it when i was using because i knew that when i was getting my particularly around cocaine that i knew that i do not know what's going to happen I was in a situation where this is going to get messy tonight. Which kind of message is it going to get? Is it going to get drastically messy? I'm going to smash up my car and kill someone? Or I'm just going to smash up my car? Or am I not going to smash it up and end up not going to work tomorrow because I'm wired, too wired to go to work? And it was frightening because I knew. But I thought, just get that one line down your neck and you won't worry about that then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's the crux point they're on, isn't it? Because all these things we're talking about with I feel guilty when so-and-so relapsed what if I've done this, what if I've done that? Okay, they're all essentially self-centered, those things. But more importantly, they're all on the what if. Mm. Now, what you're describing now with coke, Mm. it's not on the what if, because as soon as you've got that coke in your system, you don't care, do you? (laughs) Now, we take the substances away, and we get all these everyday situations, and everything becomes a what if. What if I turn up late to the meeting, there's nowhere for me to sit and everyone looks at me? Yeah. What if I'm sat next to that bloke that stinks? What if I meet that other guy outside who's obviously off his face all the time and won't leave me alone and he gets the same bus and I don't want him to find out where I live? What if I send this thing into the DWP and they claim they haven't got it in time? What if I go in for the job I'm supposed to be doing and I get there on the wrong day? Mm. What if I'm wearing the wrong shoes when I go to my interview? And all this concatenation of disasters, one follows after another. And before you know it, your head's fallen off completely. And that's without even thinking about a drink or a drug. The what if for all of us is massive, isn't it? Isn't that fear? Yes. What if? And it's fear and it's like... Yeah, yeah. it causes procrastination. And it jumps into every single everyday situation, doesn't it? How often in a day do you actually think what if? You know, it's all the time, isn't it? I'm starting to realise that my days are feeling very, very, very stressful. I'm trying to pinpoint why this is happening and why I'm like not enjoying my recovery anymore because I'm going through a stage where I'm just like, what the fuck? I'm thinking, what's changed? What's different? And it is, it's like trying to be that master puppeteer and it's trying to control everything. Because when I try and control everything, the chances are I'm not going to be able to do that. 
yeah. and it's not going to work the way I want to. So I'm setting myself up for failure all day long, every single, even down to the Amazon delivery driver. I'm ordering something, I'm thinking, right, I need to make sure that this is going to get delivered. What's going to happen if I'm not in? Ah, oh, that somebody going to run, answer the fucking doorbell, which I fitted downstairs because it's a communal block thing. And is he going to be able to do this? And are they going to? And it's like, why don't I just let it be? There's ten minutes of your day gone already. You're just what? like in the what if, what if, what if, and you haven't even got. And out that's, of that's just <laughs> one delivery. <laughs> is my phone going to ring whilst I'm in podcast? Mm. I think you've just shown what the what if does to us because it is just one delivery and that's all it is and it's not your whole day and it's not the end of the world if it doesn't come today because they might say oh we'll deliver it tomorrow or they might give you a pickup point but we don't think that way when it's happening I think it's something that's ingrained in all of us isn't it we either look to catastrophize <laughs> or we're trying to control I'm always fascinated by this thing when people say I don't think I'm enjoying my recovery anymore mm. because one of the things we don't perhaps talk about is how recovery itself dips and troughs and scoops up and scoops down and goes sideways and goes every each other ways. And whatever I'm doing, that doesn't necessarily mean that everything's going to be swimming. It's just a bit annoying, isn't it? What's not what I was promised. The Life is, on life's terms is about, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> and Ronnie, the chances are you're not doing anything different. You're not doing anything wrong. There's no, nothing particular happening. It's just one of those periods where things aren't that great. My head tells me, it's like, well, hang on a minute, right? You've had how many years in your life where everything's been fucked? Now everything needs to be good. What's this bad bit? Where's this coming to if I'm doing If you look at the amount of time as a percentage, you were out there, what, 20 years? 25. And now you've had two and a half coming up for three. Mm. It's no wonder, is it? Really. Old habits, it. old habits trying to control the fucking show. Yeah. It's that self-will run you, right. I want you over there. <laughs> I want you sitting down there. You don't speak until this person's... Uh, don't you say sure that, because she'll find this out, and I can't have him finding that out about her afterwards. You need to cut, arrive ten if minutes you, late. If so you all just sit perfectly still where I tell you to, and think what I want you to think, and say what I want you to say, the whole world will be all fucking rainbows and unicorns. I need a reset. <laughs> I need a reset. <laughs> like you said earlier, Rich, is that powerlessness. You, you like reach a new level of it. So yeah. you're becoming powerless over your drug and alcohol use. You go through the programme, and... You connect to a power that stops that behaviour and then you start working with other people around this stuff and then you realise just how powerless you really are on a whole other level. Here's what I've learned, you know, if you learn it, you too can be clean and sober. Yeah, that's lovely, thanks, I'm going to go and smoke crack. Okay, well what if I, and again the boy is, well what if I do two sessions with him a week instead of one? What if I spend all my time like chaperoning them through fucking life until they get the programme in place? What if? I take on one less sponsor and just concentrate on that one. It's just like, no, just do what you need to do and just have faith that whatever's going to happen is going to be the right thing. Cause, it's yeah. right. I was hell-bent on getting someone into recovery before, showing them, not thinking, you've got to get this, you've got to get this, and I got them into recovery, and then they left early and back out there, smashed this out, and they went, fucking hell, that was a waste of time. But they came back in. And they said, you planted that seed, and that's why I'm back. Because I never knew about this organisation for a start. And she actually thanked me for it. It's quite nice to be there with her a couple of weeks ago. And she's doing really well. Good. But yes, yeah, so sometimes, if you say one thing to one person, that might be the difference. Could be the difference between life and death, madly enough.
just about doing the right thing and then just letting yeah. whatever be, isn't it? Yeah. Like, yeah. This is how I did it. This is how it worked for me. And keeping then it in the day. Keeps it sticks in the head, doesn't it? It's like my brother suggested to me. He says, "You know, I find to our rehab." And I was thinking, "Yeah, you bastard!" He pulled up outside my house, me a wet house one day, and he had a the rehab van and a brand new pair of trainers on. He's in recovery himself, and so I've seen him rock bottom, and I thought, "Look, you bastard! <laughs> you're driving a van." It didn't belong to him. It was a Chevrolet van as well, but it was just I couldn't. I was amazed, and you've got new trainers, and I thought, "I'm fucked." you're lucky and he suggested that I might want to go to rehab I took the suggestion on and I think it was more out of boredom of my life sometimes it doesn't matter why we did it it's, it's why we say that matters anyway we have a very important alternative thing to discuss for once as something was brought in before you arrived on it mm. and in a completely needless but hey, what the hell, change of subject, and now for something completely different. <laughs> Gareth, tell us about the golf course. Oh, God, yeah. I went over to Worcester. My brother moved up there from Bedfordshire about a year and a half ago, and, and obviously all of last year I was using flat out. I hadn't even been to visit their new house. Part of my step eight was I need to make amends to my brother and his partner and for the, yeah, the carnage that I've caused them over the years. So I went over to Worcester, visited his new house and had some dinner with him and then we went for a walk out on Worcester Golf Course, which is literally like a hundred yards at the end of his road. We play together regularly. I mean, he could literally put his clubs on a trolley and just- Yeah, hold him one from the garden. He's, he's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, not the way that we play, no. <laughs> no, right. I don't think he'd get a hole in one in his garden, let alone from his garden. <laughs> Yeah, oh, it was beautiful. It was really quiet as well. For, surprisingly, not many people on it for a bank holiday Monday and with the weather the way that it was yesterday. But it was absolutely stunning, the scenery around there. So, yeah, we're planning to go and get a game in once I can play again, which would be nice. Sounds yeah. good. Sounds interesting. Yeah, it's a corker. We played golf in the society. The old man got us all into it. He'd started playing when he was about 50 and became addicted to it really quickly. I was talking to someone about it last night. So my old man, like, he drank whiskey, but he had like a collection of single malt whiskies, and he was the kind of person that could just have a top and that would be it. So he wouldn't put anything with it, never mix anything with his whiskies, but he had a collection of these single malt whiskies, so he would have one. So he wasn't really an addict in the kind of normal sense of the word, if you like. But he used to play golf at least three times a week when he retired, and he, yeah. was, he was good, he was really, really good. But when he couldn't play, I watched this descent into the madness of addiction because it was like he'd been smoking crack and someone had taken away his pipe. <laughs> he couldn't get out on the golf course and he was mm. just like, oh, just like, you know, I saw all the behaviours, character defects coming out, the anger and, and the frustration and stuff like that and the mm -hmm. intolerance and the impatience just like skyrocket because he couldn't play. That was quite an insight for me into like the behavioural addictions yeah, as definitely. opposed to just the substance addictions. When he couldn't play golf, it was like he was going through a rattle. It was mad. Mm. But yeah, he got us into it, so we played regularly with my brothers and myself. And we're, My playing partner is one of the BBC One weathermen. So it's my cousin's boyfriend. And we go and play as a, like a foursome. So me and the weatherman against my two, my two other brothers. And we play hole for hole. And then we play with a society sort of once a month where mm -hmm. we get to about 30 of us get together go out and play for trophies and stuff like that and every year we play a memorial game for my old man at oh, the course okay. called Piddly. Me and one of my brothers have both won the trophy 
and my oldest brother hasn't and he's absolutely raging about it <laughs> it's like, but he tries so hard because he's the oldest son yeah, yeah. he just tries too hard when he plays on that particular day and he just ends up making a mess of it but it's quite a sore point for him <laughs> I haven't been able to play uh, not since about August when I was playing last year one of the reasons I needed to make amends to my brother was because he was paying for my society days and it's like 35 quid mm. a pop and it was on the understanding that I didn't have any money even mm. though I was working full time and stuff like that the reason yeah, I didn't yeah, have yeah. any money is because I was turning up to the course with a you know, a pocket full of crack and crack. heroin <laughs> sitting in the car going I'll be with you in a minute getting yeah. a bacon sandwich and a cup of tea you know stopping halfway round and getting a bit of foil out of my bag and hiding in the trees and having a quick boot and stuff so I just, yeah, I went to make amends to him, but I'm looking forward to the summer and getting back on the course with him. It's amazing, isn't it? It's another spiritual experience, isn't it? To have that change of going from one place to another like that. Yeah, the contrast. The contrast of it. Because mm. I never looked at stuff like what spiritual experiences was until somebody mentioned it in a meeting they went to recently. And it was like, oh, so you could class that as a spiritual experience. So if something drastically changed. Somebody else actually mentioned it as well. I know I've digressed probably and gone somewhere completely different, but I tend to do that for some reason. I don't know why. <laughs> but somebody was sharing in another meeting they went to, and they said the fact that the the craving for drink was lifted, because for me it was lifted overnight. He said that is a spiritual experience of the bang time. I never looked at it like that, and it's like, mm. you know, it's, that is a massive one. Because that's my story, it went, the craving went overnight. I think you're right though, Ronnie, about the, the fact that spiritual experiences occur in the everyday. Yeah. They don't have to be this supernatural thing. Supernatural, yeah. That's and right. even if the removal of the obsession comes overnight, it doesn't have to be this great white light and St. Paul on the road to Emmaus, does it? It's actually just the experience itself may happen in the everyday. Yeah. But you know it's magic and you can't quite explain how. Well, that's bit in the right. book called spiritual experience where it talks about most of our spiritual experiences are educational sometimes they are quite profound even though it says it in the book are of the educational variety I think people when they hear it start thinking oh it must be, must, must it must be extraordinary to, to see and, and yeah. extraordinary to feel but actually I think it happens over time doesn't it yeah. it does happen over time don't get me wrong I've had some actual profound spiritual experiences and I thought I'm actually tripping here do you know mm. what I mean? and I do believe this is only my personal belief that we can have spiritual experiences in the madness oh yeah because you're connecting it's just wild and, and you know I felt some really like euphoric times not necessarily just because of the drugs themselves because of where my head has gone my friend Roger one of the very first times I took LSD he had like long hair and a beard wore like flowery embroidered clothes and waistcoats and stuff like that and I was sat looking at him and he had this kind of gold halo around his head that was just thousands of little images mm. of his face and all these beams of light coming out of him and he looked like Jesus and I was kind of like whoa and then he went I'm not sure exactly what happened and I, he went and the rest of my night got quite dark once he'd left it was like poof, I went into this kind of quite dark trip and it wasn't I mean, some people would categorise it as a bad trip, but I enjoyed it because it was yeah. intense. But it was that intense that I couldn't speak to anyone for a couple of weeks afterwards. I was really like a bit done in by it all. I thought I need to go and speak to him about it because he was like, you know, he was big into his LSD and, and stuff. So I went around to speak to him. He was living in a shared house in this place that he lived. 
I went and knocked on the door and he opened the door and he went to me, oh, I've been waiting for you. And I was like, okay. And I hadn't mentioned any of this to anybody. I hadn't spoken to anyone about what I'd seen or experienced. And we went up to his room and walked in and he just picked up this card, turned around and gave it to me. And it was a postcard. And mm -hmm. on it was a picture of an archway with Jesus mm. standing, holding a lamp. And on the back of it, he'd written, there are many rooms in my father's house. See you over on the old golden side. Ride, baby, ride. Love, Roger. And I just went, what? And he went, there you go. And I was like, do you know what? I saw you as Jesus. And he went, I know, I've been waiting for you. So I could just see you had that mm. boom, that spiritual experience. So I could see it happen in you. He said, and I knew you were tripping, but I knew what you were seeing. <laughs> it's like, well, wow, that's too freaky. <laughs> that's yeah, too... I'm, I'm not even going to go into the story of whenever I had too much we once, but it couldn't have been any more proof of a spiritual experience. It was balmy. But I did also have... When I had the feeling the lift was gone, the, the desire to want to drink was gone, mm. I also had a sense of peace come over me, which has never left. Mm. It was in the hospital when it happened. I had a sense of peace. Mm. It never, ever, ever, ever left. But this is the thing about like clean and sober spiritual experiences. Mm. So the stuff that you know that happened when I was using. It's sort of well and good, but there's almost part of me that goes, yeah, but was it real and were you just imagining it and did it become what you wanted it to become? Was it self-fulfilling, all that sort of thing? And it hasn't given me a belief in Jesus, me seeing him like that, by the way. It's just a mm -hmm. an example. Mm -hmm. But the spiritual experiences I've had just from staying clean and sober and seeing the world as it truly is and being lit up by certain events happening, it's a much more profound thing for me. It's, it goes to a much deeper level within me because I know it's real. I know it's not contrived in any way by the chemicals I put in my body to make it happen. Yeah. Mm. So it's just, it seems more profound to me. I believe the fact that I got into recovery when I did was a spiritual experience. Mm. It completely happened by accident. Mm -hmm. Completely. I was living in a hostel. I'd used for like a couple of days with a friend of mine, this friend who got in touch with me recently and I was absolutely done. I was just desperate not to use again. I didn't know about recovery, really. Mm -hmm. I've been to one NA meeting eight years ago and I don't remember anything of it. I just knew I wanted to stop, so I got in touch with CGL. I wasn't on a script or nothing like that, so they weren't really helping me do any of those groups there, and I ended up meeting a woman in those groups who had been in the organisation that I am in now, and I ended up talking to her. She got me the number for the guy who runs it, mm -hmm. I didn't know anything about it. I just thought it was a place where people weren't allowed to use, and that was it. Yeah. Got there, had the assessment. They said you've got to do three meetings a week. You've got to do groups every day. And it was an abstinence-based program. And I was like, Ugh. and I was just sort of like a rabbit in headlights. I was like, okay, 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 mm -hmm. and then didn't realise what I was saying yes to, and then just got started. The, the people I was living with at the time dragged me to my first. Well, it was my second meeting, but my first meeting in Birmingham, and just getting that getting the message and the identification straight away in that meeting because with the first NI meeting I went to in Nottingham my ears weren't open I was feared it and like they made me read out the 12 steps and I hated it it was all war stories and I don't really remember about anything that was said really mm. but in this meeting in Birmingham I was looking at the floor I was completely battered to bits feared up to hell and I just knew that I was in the right place and that to me that was it was a profound experience I've tried to get clean myself over the years, loads and loads and loads of time. Spent like 10 years trying to stop and not being able to stay stopped. And the fact that I got there at that moment. The reason I was in a hostel in Birmingham is because I was on probation from something I'd done in Nottingham two years before. 
I got made homeless in Kidderminster and they'd helped me get into that hostel. And it's just all these coincidences. They must have been for a reason. It must have been. What well, does it say about coincidence? The coincidence is it's the brain's way of trying to explain something you can't. Mm. <laughs> I think that's Too many coincidences mm. to be coincidental, mate. <laughs> Too many. You've heard the story of how I met my first sponsor. I was going completely mad and couldn't stop using. And I went to a friend of mine who worked for drug services and said, I need some help. And she gave me a number for this guy. I didn't use it, I went and used drugs instead, so I didn't phone this guy. Two weeks later I ended up having a complete mental breakdown and was suicidal and I was sectioned and put in a, a psych unit for four weeks. And when I came out of there I met two guys in a hostel, the homeless hostel that I was discharged into. And I went in there with literally nothing. You know, half a bag of dirty clothes and a second hand guitar back out of crack converters. And I met these two guys in there, one of them took me through the doctor's opinion in the book and then on the Thursday night we got picked up by this guy and taken to a meeting. I heard a guy sharing this meeting. It scared the crap out of me actually because mm -hmm. it was like he'd been writing my life story down. And then on the Saturday I heard a guy from London share and I asked him to sponsor me and he said, I can't, do you know this guy? And it was the guy that I'd heard share on the Thursday. So mm -hmm. he gave me his number and I rang him and he said, I'm really busy, I've got loads of sponsors, I can't help you. Do you know this guy? And I said, well, I don't know him, but he's the guy that drove us down to hear you on Thursday. So gave me his number and when I rang this number it was the number that my friend had given me seven weeks previously. <laughs> like that sums it up. Yeah. That's <laughs> like God saying you're going that way. Yes, you like, you, you can deviate for a few months but you're gonna end up there in the yeah, end. Guess what? We're gonna get you to where you're supposed to be, whatever it takes. <laughs> I'd say right well, this one needs a lot of work. I'm just yeah. gonna put it in front of you. Yeah. Here's the number I'm just floating out you know you got twenty for this, you know. I just feel really like fortunate and blessed as well and that was another spiritual experience for me is that I went through all that stuff and ended back where I was supposed to be and, and my behaviour and my actions in that period of time, the two weeks after seeing her and the four weeks in the psyche unit, I was suicidal and I was using to die, you know, and I could have died and it's like power, God, universe, whatever you want to call it, kept me alive through that process to get back to where I was supposed to be. Because my will was like, I was dying on my feet and wanted to die and was looking for ways to expedite that. But it just didn't, you know, it didn't happen. <laughs> no, 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 you're supposed to meet this guy. What are you doing? He's not going over here and just get back there. Go on. <laughs> yeah. What happened for me, there were no bright lights. And the, it was nevertheless quite extraordinary for what it was. Because the morning I was going to Clarity House and I'd got a bag of stuff and my guitar and my mate was coming to take my other stuff to put in his loft and I'm sitting there with a can of bottle of cider, I think it was a can or something, and I wasn't really with it and I'd only got a tenner in my pocket and it didn't actually get me all the way to the shelter of the wood. I had to walk the last bit and I got this can of cider in my hand because I got out of the cab. And just as I was coming up to Clarity House, there's this bin, and I'm looking at this can of cider, and I just said to it, I don't have to deal with you anymore, and just dropped it in the bin. <laughs> and suddenly, because I've been stumbling and heaving this rucksack and almost falling over, and it was like the end of The Usual Suspects, where he starts walking properly, you know, suddenly I was actually walking. <laughs> And okay, I fell through the door when I got there, but I genuinely believe that I left it there. Yeah. 
I actually left it there in that bin and that was it. And the occasional fleeting ideas that we can get, and I'm sure I'm not the only one that's had the old no. fleeting idea of, oh, why don't I just go and get pissed once? It's so easy to dismiss when I think of why I don't need it anymore. And it can happen over time for people, it can happen very quickly. There's all sorts of different ways it happens. But so long as it happens, yeah. when you're actually confronted with the stuff, it doesn't mean what it used to mean. And it doesn't have that power over you anymore. Drugs and alcohol definitely don't have power over me. But I do fantasise. But I know that's all it is. Plenty of people do that, don't they? The other thing that struck me about your golf thing is this idea that we change everything and we find new hobbies and we do this new and we do everything new is not totally true. No. Certainly for me, one of the things that I have rediscovered in recovery is writing music. And it was something that I thought I wouldn't touch again because of associations. But there's this kind of regeneration of old stuff that I used to do that I can do even better now. Or I don't feel that I have to be perfect at now. Mm -hmm. And that I can just take up and do again in a way that I thought I wouldn't. When you were talking about golf, I just thought, you know, it's a great analogy because golf is the one game you don't have to be any good at at all. <laughs> no. Now, most other sports, you've got to have a degree of competence. But golf is up there as the one where actually, as long as you've got a club and you hit the odd one in a straight line, you're okay. Yeah. The only thing about it is the self expectation. Because when you do start to improve, you've been playing for a little while, and you start to improve, oh, yeah. and you have them days where you're just hitting the ball sweetly, and everything seems to be going right, and you're racking up the points, and you win the trophy at the end of it, and you think, wicked, and then the next time you go out, you just lose half a dozen balls on the first hole, you hit every bit of water going, they bounce off the trees, you lose balls, you, you can't hit a bloody thing straight, they go left, right, up, down, behind you. Great right for like, patience ah, and tolerance. Hell yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's why it, why it was introduced to my life, to teach me that. Those two particular things, impatience and intolerance, they're at the very top of my defects list. <laughs> Every morning when I pray for my defects to be removed, it's like, please remove from me my de my, these defects, impatience, intolerance, arrogance, sloth and lust. They're the first five that come out. <laughs> like, just get rid of them ones and we'll deal with the others as they come up, but those ones particularly. I was a terrible golfer. I think that was because I just played cricket shots. All the time. <laughs> so rather than hitting it straight, I was hitting it at angles because it was like a cricket shot. <laughs> Turned up with a cockaburra. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not good for the people on the other. I remember going to play. Went to play with a few of the teachers, and me and my mate went round with this guy who never played before, but his father had passed away sadly, and he'd been left his clubs. And there we are on the tee and it's a 400 odd yard hole and he goes for his five iron I thought we'd better not say anything here and then several shots later and landing in the water and god knows what else later we're on the green and I'm feeling quite great about this because I've got to the green in three shots and I'm thinking oh, I'm going to look good here even though my putting was what always let me down always and it comes to the putting and this guy he goes to put and he picks his fucking driver off and goes to use it as a potter on the green. <laughs> None of us had any idea what to say to this. And he's there trying to tap it with this huge headed driver. 
and it took him about nine shots to get anywhere near it and he said um, is this the club I'm meant to use <laughs> it is if you want to putt 240 yards I mean it didn't matter because it was just for fun anyway but it helps if you're not a good golfer to play with someone else who's not a good golfer yeah. But you say something about the ones watching nine times you use the same club and no one said anything. We played up in a place called Cruden Bay, which Donald Trump bought it, and then the locals just told him no and bought it back off of him and said you can't because he wanted to make all sorts of changes. Yeah, just, yeah. They just said no, bollocks, and he ended up having to build a course further down the Scottish coast. But we played there, and it's a links course, and it's just com- like completely surrounded by heather and cliff face mm. and sea. It's a really, really technical course, and we were up there, and we were like, "Oh, okay, it's 150 quid a round. It's like a proper PGA Tour course, mm. you know." And I'm playing off like a 28 handicap, <laughs> but I can hold my own, and I play quite well under that sometimes. Anyway, we went on the course, and so my brother said, "Like, you know, we'll go and play on this course." And we went down, we went out to the first team, and when we went in the pro shop, they gave us the cards, and they gave us like a handful of the tees, the, the sort of branded tees and stuff like that. Oh, lovely! And we went off to the first tee, and this guy came over. And he was like, how you doing, fellas? And we were like, yeah, we're all right. How are you doing? Like, why has he come to the first tee? And it turns out he's the club pro. So he's like a professional golfer okay. who's the club pro. And he said, oh, yeah, no, I'm just here to uh, make sure that you have a nice round and watch you all tee off. And I don't want people just like digging the ground up with their golf clubs. But we thought, it's okay, because we all know how to play. We, you know, we can all hold our own on the golf course. And all three of us teed off and... Mine went up in the air, off to the left, down. My brothers went up in the air, off to the right, down. My other brother scuffed it. He went about eight feet along the ground. We just started oh, What did the pro say? <laughs> he just went, it'll be a long round, boys, but enjoy it. <laughs> My brother literally went eight feet off the tee. At least he suggest you do it again and hit it with yeah. a shovel. <laughs> yeah. I've seen that happen on the first yeah. tee. Have another go. It's a standing joke, isn't it? Like, if you don't get past the ladies' tee, you're supposed to play the hole with your trousers around your ankles. Yeah. <laughs> it never happens. <laughs> just because if it did, half the people we go out with would yeah, just be yeah. trouserless for most of the rounds. <laughs> we'd just be playing in our boxer shorts. <laughs> I suppose it is, a, like you say, an analogy for recovery because you do have them days where you play really well and everything goes right and you just get to the end. Oh, this is amazing. I love recovery. And then the next day you can wake up and everything just goes to shit. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, for fuck's sake. Like, <laughs> the hole, yeah, it goes in. Then yeah. you put your head on the pillow clean. Yeah, that's, that's another a, day done, isn't it? It's a good round, that one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, I mean, it's like having a deck of cards. You don't know what you're going to pick out the next, but you just don't know. It might be a good day tomorrow. Yeah. yeah. That's why it's so important to keep it in the day and understand that everything is temporary. When I'm playing golf that well, I know that's not going to continue. <laughs> I know that 100 years of experience to show that's not going to continue. <laughs> when I'm playing really badly, although it's frustrating because of my expectations around the previous day when I was playing really well, I do know that that's not going to continue and that there'll be a day where I will play again well. And for me, I have to mm. remind myself of that because otherwise I get caught up in, well, you played like nine strokes under your handicap yesterday. Why are you playing five over today? Yeah. And I get caught up in that like, projection and, and that frustration. And then it just makes it even harder. The way we play sports or the way we engage with hobbies, whatever, can say a lot about how we are that day. Yeah. Could be playing golf or playing pool even. Mm-hmm. And it actually gives away that you're impatient, or it gives away that you're a bit pissed off, or it gives away that you don't feel like talking to anyone, mm. or it gives away that you're frustrated or whatever. It's quite a big analogy with recovery, all this stuff, mm-hmm. because 
yeah, it's not always going to go the way that I've preordained that it will. Mm. And what if I do that? And what if I do this? And <laughs> and actually, there's a lot to be made of. Well, hang on, why is he rushing around the course today? Mm. Or why is he? pretending that he's only played five shots when he's played nine <laughs> and, and oh, like the magic that. pencil and the dishonesty with that it's yeah. not every time is it mm. and when you're having a good round you're not going to say it and and also when you're having a good round and you don't seem to be trying it's like oh, I'm at peace with the world here yeah. and I haven't yeah. done anything yeah, yeah. I've when you played three really good tee shots all of which land in a bunker or the water what have I got to do? <laughs> what have I got to do? And suddenly it's a bad day, and I don't know why. Start praying, like, oh, come on, give me the strength to play golf. Yeah. <laughs> what are we doing wrong? Bro? Yeah, yeah, what am I doing wrong? And that is a perfect analogy for how my life goes sometimes with yourself, you know, regards to recovery. Like you say, you know, I get up and I, and I do my prayers and I do my meditation and I do a gratitude list and I read some inspirational literature and I phone some people and then I go out and I just end up like angry and frustrated in the world because things just aren't going. You know, something will happen, DWP will contact me and say, oh, by the way, this has happened or, you know, yeah, just something will happen and just think, what have I got to do for it all to run smoothly? The reality is it doesn't need to run smoothly necessarily as long mm. as I don't buy into it. I often find with routine as well that, that sometimes what I do in order to stay well just goes in the blink of an eye. I don't even know I've done it. Mm. But then there'll be another day where it feels like the most arduous fucking thing I've ever done in my life. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And there's no reason for it to be different from day one where everything went swimmingly. There's no yeah. obvious reason that I can put my finger on, which is this is why, but it happens. Mm. Yeah. It's all well and good and easy to be spiritual sitting in the garden praying and meditating. If when you bump into other humans, that's when you, that's when your program really kicks in. See how spiritual you are when the people wake up. <laughs> I know, yeah. When <laughs> you have nice. to interact with them. <laughs> <laughs> see, how you, see how your program Wouldn't it be nice in. if everyone did what I wanted them to do <laughs> and interacted with each other in the way that I want them to interact? <laughs> Why can't the world be my version of The Sims? <laughs> it's like when they say people play some things, we have problems. If we don't have problems with places or things, I have problems with people. Oh, yes. And that's <laughs> literally it. And it's people like, being in places that I want to be where I don't want and them. And plus, I don't, <laughs> if, if there was no people around, if it was just me, I'd be like, And that's what it is. It's dealing mm. with others, isn't it? I had a beautiful day yesterday. I went up to Church Stretton to look for Longmind. Ended up climbing some other hills. And it's all along Min when I was on top of this hill. But it's obviously Long Min's quite popular. The other hills that I was walking up, there was not many people up there. I think I was bumped into two people all day. And it was amazing just to be on my own mm. and just be with nature. I, I just find I need to get that I can get out and collect my thoughts a little bit and just yeah. it was real nice just to be on my own for a little bit. I think we find ways, don't we? of connecting with that spiritual yeah. side and that it becomes part of the things that we do and it might be we're rediscovering things that we already did or we might find new things that we do and there's these places that just happen mm. and things that just happen if, if, if we stick at it because I never know where my peace of mind is going to come from or when it's going to go. Mm. Yeah, I can have it sitting in bloody solid hole on the bench it can suddenly just go whoa there's a the thing as well like looking for long mind and not finding it and then mm. seeing it from a distance and seeing it with loads of people on it had you actually found it 
you might not have enjoyed the walk up it because there would have been loads of other people up there and you went up somewhere crowded, else anyway crowded yeah. around into, into your headspace you went up somewhere else and you found that peace and tranquility you were looking for in the place you weren't looking for it how bizarre is that? Yeah, because usually in the past I would have got really frustrated with that and just got frustrated with myself at the fact that I didn't find it. But I just got off the train and sort of looked saw some hills and just aimed towards them. And I was just like, you know what, you know, just let it be, sort of thing. And I watched the thing this morning. There's, it's obviously from a film, and the, this guy's walking along through like a desert with this woman walking behind him, and she's like, well, how do you know which way we're going? And he said, I'm just I'm using faith to walk. Mm. And she's like, well, what do you mean? He said, well. I just know that it's the right way to go. She goes, but you've got no direction. So I don't need direction. I've got faith. Just feel that it's the right way to go. And that's yeah. obviously what happened yesterday. Faith's just like, right, there's some hills. You wanted peace and tranquility and some serenity for yourself and some headspace. That's the hill. Even yeah. though like, you've gone there with this specific idea. Again, it's that self-will stuff, isn't it? Versus God's will. You're like, I'm going to go to Long Min. God's like, no, you ain't. It's a different hill. <laughs> <laughs> this that, is the one you think it is, and it ain't. That no, no, hill. No, no. <laughs> absolutely spot on. And on that spiritual note... The Book of Eli. We have exhausted <coughs> the clock once more. Really? With considerable focus, too, I think, today. Yeah. yeah. If you've heard anything that's resonated with you for whatever reason, whether it's yourself, whether it's someone you know and love, whether it's someone that you don't know, whether it's someone that you might know, it doesn't matter. There is help out there. Most of us, in fact, just about everyone on the planet is affected at some time in their lives by an alcoholic or an addict. There is help out there, you don't have to pay for all of it. There is plenty of stuff for the sober or clean curious, like listening to us every week. There are many different things out there and you can find them just by Googling them. And with that, we will leave you for now and have a lovely week and a lovely weekend and we will be back next week. So it's a good night for you. And me. And me. Thanks, Thanks, mate.